Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. Now, you've probably heard a lot of Christmas songs in just the last few days even. And one of them you've probably heard is that Andy Williams song, that it's a real earworm, right? It gets in your head and you can't get it out of your head. The most wonderful time of the year. You can hardly walk into a store without that catchy little tune making its way to your ears and you're sort of humming it. And I'm not going to dispute the claims of the song. Who am I to do that? You may very well believe it is the most wonderful time of the year. I mean, after all, Who doesn't like to hear kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer? It must be the most wonderful time of the year, right? But I'm a little confused by by some of the lyrics, particularly the one about parties for hosting. That seems like a lot of work to me. I I, I don't understand that one. Um, Of course, it's always good to have loved ones close, but, but even to have a party with them, Seems like a lot of work. I'm also really confused, and I never thought about it until I looked up the lyrics of the song to talk, to talk to you about it here. Marshmallows for toasting? Who toasts marshmallow at Christmas? Isn't that what we do around the campfire? I, I think they just needed a word that rhymed with hosting, so they went with marshmallows toasting. But what do I know about any of this? What do I know? Whether you love the Christmas season or not, You have to agree that this is all a great time of the year. And if you find it to be a little bit of a chore, you still can't dispute that this is a great season. There's just something about the anticipation of Christmas and looking forward to all the festivities and seeing family and friends. And ultimately, we love that it points to one of the most important truths of the Christian faith that God the Son took on human flesh and he came to earth to save us. Now I think that we often take the glitz and the fun of the Christmas season and we sort of apply that to the Christmas story itself, right? We kind of make it clean and, and polished and, and nice. I mean, think about some of the Christmas carols we sing. Um, the little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. He was a human baby. He cried. Right? That's the way things work. But we like to make it sound all clean and nice. But actually, isn't the Christmas story kind of of a messy one? Maybe just as messy as some of the family gatherings that you've had in your life. They're not always clean. Think about the celebrations of Christmas. We have all the stuff mentioned in the song I was quoting from. And we have all the other stuff that the traditional songs talk about this time of year. All that stuff is great. We love them. But they aren't as clean as all the songs make them out to be, are they? Now, a week ago, my wife and I uh, went and saw a production of White Christmas in Sioux Falls. And as we were leaving, and the show was, was very entertaining, I'd never really thought about it. I knew nothing about the story. I'd never seen the play before. I'd never seen the movie But I, of course, had the song White Christmas in my head as we left the theater, and there were snow flurries. And I thought, what if this keeps us from getting home? 
what's so great about a white Christmas? And it seems good, you know, even if it's just mild flurries, it sounds like a white Christmas is great, but how long does snow stay untouched? How long does it stay pretty like the postcard? What, two minutes before it gets dirty? It doesn't stay, it doesn't stay clean very long. It gets dirty, it gets slushy, we trip, we fall. And even the romanticized family moments of meals and presents, those can be messy too, right? You have to prepare the food, and then you have to clean up the dishes. That's a whole lot of work for what ends up being, at best, a 30-minute feast, right? Then everybody's happy about presents. Presents are awesome. But you have to, then you have to clean up those messes, and then you find out that something doesn't fit or you didn't buy the right size batteries. All this stuff often ends up messy. You, you get the idea. We understand that all the moments of life, everything, even the wonderful things of Christmas, they require work. They sometimes end up with difficulties. And really, nothing in this life is clean. Nothing in this life is easy. And of course, the same is true as we recall the reason that we've gathered today. The Christmas story is full of difficulties. It's full of hardships. And of course, it should be. It's a real story that happened in real time, space, history. And it's ultimately about the salvation of our souls. And our sin is messy. We shouldn't think that there's a nice, clean answer to our sin. And we see that all throughout Scripture. We see that on display. But it's also on display for us here in this Christmas story from the Gospel of Matthew that we've read today. Now, as we take a look at this text, we find that it isn't the traditional Christmas story with Bethlehem and and no room in the inn, and the shepherds watching their flocks by night. We were, were working our way through Luke. We read that back in October, I think. And so we're here in Matthew, because we've just recently read the Christmas story in Luke. And Matthew is one of the two places that we actually have uh, an account of the birth of Jesus in the Gospels. And while it doesn't have very many details about the Christmas story, I love this Christmas story because it gives us a little insight into what this experience might have been like or must have been like in the lives of Mary and Joseph. And while this is, this is a story that I think we know pretty well, I still want to break it down into our usual three points so that we can come away with a better understanding of the story as we move through it and we can see the significance of it. So the first thing I want us to see in this gospel story of the birth of Jesus is that this coming of Jesus was a blessed announcement But it was, in fact, a difficult one. You can understand why Joseph acts the way that he does when he discovers that Mary is pregnant. Because this whole thing is a bit of a scandal, isn't it? But yet, it means that that God is using Mary and Joseph to bring about his purposes. Secondly, we see that God confirms the circumstances surrounding the conception of the child that Mary is carrying. And this is not due to the influences of man. It's due to the ordained plan of Almighty God. It's a part of his greater purpose, and it's to fulfill the promise of the one who will bring salvation to the people of God. And finally, we hear that Joseph is faithful, and he responds in obedience to what God has called him to do. And we hear the good news that the Christ child is born. 
And so we start off and we see immediately that this is not the story that we expect. If you, if you didn't know what was contained in this account in Matthew's gospel, that first line would likely have your mind going to away in the manger and hark the herald angels sing. If you were to read, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, we would expect that story, the story we know from Luke. But we don't find any of that part of the birth narrative here at all. There's a different story being told here, and it's being told rather quickly. We find that Mary is betrothed to a man named Joseph. Now, several weeks back, when we were working our way through the first parts of the Gospel of Luke, I mentioned that betrothal was serious business. I mentioned that you and I see betrothal as being kind of like an engagement because we don't really, we don't really have a category for this in our modern culture. We don't really understand what it is, but it's so much more than an engagement. Once you are betrothed, the marriage is essentially official in their culture. The couple has not consummated the marriage, and they do not live together. But if you want out of this arrangement, you don't just give the engagement ring back or tell you, I'm not showing up on our wedding day. There has to be a legal divorce. And this piece of information, this understanding of their culture, helps us understand what we're reading here. Put yourself in the shoes of Joseph for a moment. Imagine that you find out that the woman you are betrothed to is pregnant and you know it ain't you. Imagine what's going on here. The scandal of all of this. This is obvious reason for concern. This is the first big issue. That's just what Joseph is experiencing at the personal level. Then you have to deal with the issue of whether or not the young woman you're going to be married to long-term is going to remain faithful to you. These are the thoughts likely going through the head of Joseph. Now, obviously, the most important issue, that's what is what's going on. But then you also also have the other issue, the external issues. In their culture, what are people going to be saying about you in the marketplace? As you walk by, what are they going to be whispering? right? Imagine the scandal of all of this. As a carpenter, you also have to imagine that Joseph is doing work out in the public eye. And what are they going to say about him after he leaves? They're going to assume one of two things. Well, either that Joseph and Mary jumped the gun in the relationship, or that the one that he's betrothed to is unfaithful. In their culture, neither one of those would have been very well looked upon. Now, I'm sure if we talked it through, we might be able to figure out some other ways that people might have looked at this, but those are the two big ones. Those are the two likely scenarios of how they were going to be treated. So like most of us would probably do, what do we see that Joseph does? He, he seeks to get out of the situation. And notice what the text tells us here. It says that Joseph is a just man. He's looking to get out of this, but He's trying to do it quietly. Essentially, he doesn't want to bring public shame to Mary, and so he wants to to do this on the down low. Well, in these seven verses we're looking at today, we don't have many details, but you have to wonder what conversations occurred here that that we don't read about in the story. Joseph finds out she is pregnant, and he confronts her, and she gives him the story that we that we read in the book of Luke about how the angel came and told her all this stuff. How would you respond to that story if you were Joseph? 
How, how would that be for you? It would take a whole lot of trust in Mary and what she had to say, right? And it would take a whole lot of faith in God to believe that a virgin could conceive. It defies not only basic biology, it defies logic. And I think that this shows a lot of integrity on the part of Joseph to be willing to divorce her quietly instead of publicly showing that you have been wronged, that someone has wronged you. As I mentioned, as we started out with this passage, this isn't an easy path. This is messy. It would have been a whole lot easier if things would have just happened in a different way. But even before he's born, the story of Jesus is starting out with a man who will be his earthly father having to make a difficult choice, right? But as we know, the story continues with God sending an angel to confirm the story that he's likely heard from Mary as well. And we know from the account of the birth of Jesus in Luke's gospel that an angel visited Mary, and now an angel comes to Joseph in a dream. As he is in the middle of figuring all this out and deciding what he is going to do about all of it. As I was considering this story this week, mulling it over in my head, I really started to empathize with Joseph at a new level as I considered all the different angles of this story. The roller coaster that this guy must have been on is something else. To think that your future wife is unfaithful and then to be visited by an angel and then, and then coming to grips with the fact that your wife is carrying the Messiah? I don't know how much time this, this all happened in, but that would be a busy week, I think, more than likely. Coming to grips with the, most, the fact that you are going to be the father of the most anticipated child in history and you have the great responsibility of raising that child. But what confidence, what confidence in the providence of God must have come to Joseph when the angel of the Lord visited him in this dream? You think your life is falling apart, and how are you going to handle this situation? But God comes to him with good news, and he lets him know that that it is by the hand of God that this is coming to pass, and that it is for a purpose. Notice what the angel tells Joseph the name of the child will be. Jesus. That name literally means the Lord saves. The purpose of this child is clear from the get-go. In their culture, the meaning of names really meant something. Now for us, we'll go through a baby book name, and we're like, oh, our baby's name means this or that, and then that's probably the only time you ever think about it, right? But in their culture, he would have understood the significance of this name, You and I just hear the name Jesus, but Joseph likely would have heard it this way. His name will be the Lord saves, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the message. The message here to Joseph is a proclamation of the gospel, that God is going to rescue his people. And we know who this child is. We've been waiting and watching for him throughout all of Scripture. He is the head crusher that was promised at the fall. He is the seed of the woman that is tracked throughout the promises of the Old Testament. This child is being born with a purpose. This pregnancy that is messing up the plans of Joseph is not a random, haphazard event. It's for a purpose. This is not just some child. 
This is the child, the most anticipated child in history. This is the one that is needed to rescue the people of God from their sins. And he needs to come in our flesh because you and I are dead in our sin. And it's in our very own flesh that we sin. And so we need a Savior who comes to us in our flesh. We need a rescuer who is one of us. Back in 1988, there was a young lady who was 16 years old. Her name was Anissa Ayala. And she was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia. And the doctor said that if, if she did not receive a bone marrow transplant after chemotherapy and radiation, she would die. Now, neither her parents nor her brother was a match, and they couldn't find a donor from any other family member, or anywhere else. And so her parents, who were both in their 40s, probably thinking they were done having children, they conceived another child with a purpose and a hope that the bone marrow of this child would be compatible with Anissa's. Well, to their great delight, after this baby was born, it was determined that this new baby was a compatible donor. And when Marissa Ayala was 14 months old, they took some of her marrow and gave it to Anissa. And Anissa made a full recovery from the leukemia. And both of the sisters went on to lead healthy lives. And so in a very real sense, Marissa saved her sister's life. In fact, she said, without me being a perfect match for my sister, she would not be here. Well, Jesus came in human flesh because it was a perfect match. The perfect match needed to keep the law on our behalf. The perfect match that was needed to bear the wrath of God for our sin. And this is why we are here today. Because Jesus was the perfect match. Many children were born that day all across the world. But Jesus was the one born with a purpose. He was God incarnate, coming with the purpose to save us. And that's the message the angel brought to Joseph in a dream of who this child would be. And then look at what we see here in what the Old Testament passage is here that's quoted from the angel. Behold, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. The whole point of this story is that God has come near to us. God is not distant. He has come near to you and I in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And as the passage closes up, we find that Joseph does not take the easy path, the path that you and I would likely take. Instead, in obedience, he continues on the course that God has put before him. When he wakes up, he didn't think about it. He, he did it. He kept Mary as his wife, but we read that he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He was doing what the Lord commands, and it's not always easy. You and I struggle to keep the word of the Lord every day, but here we see Joseph keep the command of God. And notice what else we read. He didn't know her until she had given birth to a son. He wanted to leave no doubt that the child in her womb was not of man, but was of God. Joseph is faithful, and Jesus is born. And he and Mary were both faithful to name him 
just as the angel had directed them. They name him Jesus. The Lord saves. The Lord does the work. He saves his people. Now, as I've been drawing out, the Christmas story is filled with hardship. In addition to the dynamics of the pregnancy itself that we've seen in this story, the God then ordained that when Mary was very pregnant, she had to travel to Bethlehem. Now, that wouldn't have been so bad, but then when they arrived, there wasn't room for them. She had to give birth among the animals, and she had to lay the Messiah, the promised one from the beginning of the story. She had to lay him in a feeding trough. Well, often Christmas songs try to clean up the whole story by saying things like I mentioned earlier, no crying he makes. The truth of the matter is that this child came into the world through pain, like every child ever has. Mary likely struggled to give birth to her firstborn. And Jesus cried when he took his first breath, just like you and I did. And I'm sorry to bring this up, but he needed to have his pants changed too. Christmas is messy because human life is messy. And God came in human flesh, in the Lord Jesus, to save us because that's where we needed him to be. And the truth of the raw nature of this story is actually way more awesome than the way we imagine it in our minds. Because here it is. Your Savior left the glory of heaven for the dirty surroundings of a stable. The one who the New Testament tells us was that through him all things were made. He came and he emptied himself and he needed to be fed He needed to be changed. He needed to be cared for by another human, someone who was in rebellion against him. But he did it for you. And so that is why we gather here today, because God came near and he suffered. And as our confession tells us, he he suffered not just at the end of his life, but through his entire life. Why? To bring us salvation. And ultimately, why is this the most wonderful time of the year? Because we're reminded of the extent of what was done to save us. Our sin was great, and so we needed a great salvation. It could not be an easy thing. Our sin could not simply be pushed aside because it was an affront to a holy God. But in his mercy, God himself took the difficult path to redeem you and I and to make us a people for his own possession. And so this is where our application resides in this passage today. May you and I be drawn to the beauty of the hard things as we celebrate this Christmas. May the story of the Savior remind us of the faithfulness of Joseph to the commands of God, even though it was hard to do. I believe I've mentioned before on Christmas Day services What working at Toys R Us did to my feelings about celebrating Christmas, I'm not going to lie, it's been 25 years and I'm still not over Tickle Me Elmo. Um, But seriously, when I consider the over-commercialization of Christmas, it is the line 
from the Christmas carol. I can't remember which one it is now. I didn't put it in my notes. But you know it. Why he lies in such mean a state. When we look at the over-commercialization of all of Christmas, I remember that line. Why does he lie in such mean a state? Why is he in such a dirty stable? It snaps me back to reality from all the things that I bemoan about the over everything of Christmas. That line snaps me back because it shows us the reality of the true beauty of Christmas because the glory of Christmas is not in tinsel, it's not in presence, it's not even in the charity that we show to each other. The real beauty and the glory of Christmas is in the fact that our God came near to us He didn't show up in the fanciest palace or in a perfectly sanitized hospital. He didn't show up with fanfare and refuse to be near us lowly people. Even though we're in rebellion against him, even though we are unclean in our sin, he didn't refuse to come near to us. Instead, he came as one of us because that was the cure that we needed and it was the cure that he provided So why does he lie in such mean a state? Because he loves you, that's why. That's why. What unbelievably, unbelievably good news. So may we relish in the truth of our God-made flesh as we rejoice this Christmas season. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.